Welcome back to iDren Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's special pin is in honor of our guest. And it is a bunch of books because she is an author of many wonderful books, including the one we'll talk about today. Absolutely. And it's on the Secret Service, which is an agency that many of us have seen in movies or uh, on TV shows and know as the agency that protects political leaders and investigates crimes against the financial infrastructure of the United States. It's a vast agency with more than 3,000 special agents and more than $2 billion in funding. And it spans more than 150 years of history, which we'll get into a little bit today, but not all 150 years, of course. (laughs) It has a zero fail mission in terms of protecting the president, his family, and other top U.S. government officials and visiting dignitaries. But it has been plagued with many problems that should alarm every American. Today, we are honored to have with us Carol Lennig, who is the author of many books, and one of which speaks to the mission of the Secret Service. Of course, it's called Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service, And it does a deep dive into the creation of the Secret Service, its failures operationally, culturally, and in terms of leadership. It makes clear why the agency needs reform. Most of you know Carol as a national investigative reporter for the Washington Post, where she has been for a very long time. It's quite wonderful. And also, of course, as a three-time Pulitzer Prize winner, as co-author and co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, A Very Stable Genius. Carol is also an on-air contributor uh, for NBC and MSNBC, where we have been on panels together. So I've seen her brilliance up close and personal. And Carol, all I can say is thank you so much for joining us today. I loved your book and can't wait to talk to you about it. Well, thank you, Jill. And thank you, Victor, for having me. I'm always so happy to discuss this agency, which is, while, you know, very beleaguered and full of secrets that it tries to cover up, is also full of patriots who really want to protect democracy, to guard it by protecting the president. And um, they need help. They need our attention. So I'm delighted to be here. Absolutely. Well, well, a quick look online told me that there are over 400 federal agencies in the U.S. So I, I want to start by asking you about what made you select the Secret Service as the subject of your book. Mm. Well, the truth of the, the, the dirty little secret of journalism is some of the very best stories you ever get onto are almost by accident. And that was the case here. Uh, a wonderful colleague that I have who was covering the White House for the Washington Post, David Nakamura, we had worked on projects before and he happened to get this great scoop about what we then thought was the most humiliating thing that would ever happen to the Secret Service. It was in 2012, a group of about a dozen, a baker's dozen of Secret Service agents had all been shipped back from Cartagena, Colombia, because they had been caught in on the eve of President Obama's arrival there for a huge summit. They had been caught drinking to excess, uh, some of them passed out in hotel rooms and lobbies, and with prostitutes that they were entertaining at their government-funded hotel rooms. This was, you know, sort of the really seeing the underbelly of of what the Secret Service agents were sometimes up to on foreign trips. Um, But what I discovered is that as we tried to piece together, uh, you know, David had this scoop and asked me, would I help him figure out what in the world happened? I agreed. Sure, I'll try to figure it out. I'll reach out to Secret Service agents and their wives and their friends. But what I learned was over the course of many months is that the Secret Service had much bigger problems than this hooker gate or this, you know, boys gone wild trip to <laughs> South America. They actually, many of them were worried that President Obama would be killed on their watch. And they were petrified by how the agency was sort of stitched together and held together with duct tape. They wanted attention on all of the mistakes and all of the vulnerabilities that the agency was suffering. So, Carol, when you said boys gone wild, I had to laugh. And it's one of those times when I wonder, because this is an intergenerational podcast, whether Victor knows the reference to girls gone wild. Do you know that, Victor? I don't. Okay, (laughs) I'll I'll tell you later. (laughs) Not now. (laughs) But I got it. 
But let's just as background before we get into more details, talk about some of the major themes that you learned writing this book, because I found it fascinating, including this, you know, frat boy culture, uh, to name it slightly differently, um, the financing that the agency gets or doesn't get, the management, which has been lacking uh, for sure. It's been people appointed who are friends of the president, who were maybe part of his uh, security uh, mission and who he got to know rather than people who are good managers. Uh, I mean, tell us about some of those major themes that you explored. You're exactly right, Jill. The, this idea of people being promoted because of their friendships um, was a big problem for the Secret Service. But another one that just kind of courses through the whole agency, I, I chronicled it, its history from basically the, the weeks and months before Kennedy's assassination to the present day. And one thread, again, that courses through the whole time is the agency develops a kind of arrogance about how, how its proximity to power, the closeness that these protective details have to the president and the president's family gives them a feeling of invincibility over time. And while many of the Secret Service agents I met and relied upon for giving me the inside dirt on how this place works, Many of them are so devoted to the mission, kind of have this exemplary standard for themselves, morally, professionally, ethically. Uh, inside the agency, there's quite a large quadrant of officials and senior leaders who believe that they can use the word secret in Secret Service, the mm -hmm. national security firmament that protects the president and is supposed to be top secret classified. They could use that to cover up mistakes and cover up misconduct of their friends. And increasingly, the service over the course, especially from, say, Clinton's administration forward, and especially after 9-11, the Secret Service leadership increasingly tries to avoid disclosing the weaknesses, the failures, the misconduct of, the, of other top officials as a way for all of them to be promoted. The better to cover up those problems, the better my career is gonna go, is essentially how the Secret Service devolves. And no one sets that right. And still, to this day, the Secret Service has a large cultural problem in that regard, where people think their boat is going to rise as long as they help their tribe avoid uh, bad, publicity or a ding in their career evaluation or a failure on the road that could have put the president's life, you know, in the crosshairs. Guess you won't be applying to the Secret Service for a position. No, <laughs> no. Although, although I am an admirer of some of the individuals that I met, I'm a keen admirer of what they sacrifice personally to be the guardians of democracy. So uh, we, we want to get to some of those themes and, and possible solutions later in um, the show. But just top line, I mean, what you described was so is just so disturbing. Uh, would you say that's the most disturbing thing that you found about the Secret Service during the course of writing writing the book? Well, yes. I mean, to think that there are Secret Service leaders who are modeling this behavior for a new generation, every generation, modeling this behavior of hey, let's keep that on the QT, that we didn't screen any of the security guards, private security guards that had weapons at a presidential event. That happened in Atlanta with President Obama. Let's just not tell anybody about that. Or when President Obama, not to fixate on him, but a lot of the things I learned were during his presidency, because it's what I was covering. Uh, let's keep it on the QT that nearly a dozen Secret Service officers and agents who were in the Florida Keys to help protect the president and his family on a vacation uh, all got so S-faced in a sports bar that they were throwing up inside like the Secret Service van and inside their hotel rooms. And they got into a car accident with a truck, you know, a semi going down the highway down towards Key West. That kind of like 
cover-up mentality is not what you're looking for in the elite of the elite federal law enforcement agency. There was, again, Victor, you asked exactly the right question. What's so disturbing? I'll give you one that, that kind of cracked my brain, which was when I finally got all the internal documents about a very senior supervisor on President Obama's protective detail. This isn't some junior guy out in Cincinnati. This is a senior leader whose primary responsibility is making sure President Obama is not killed on the road or in the White House. He had been lying on his polygraphs and lying on his formal forms about a series a series, not one, a series of relationships with female foreign nationals. All of those people could have been spies and the Secret Service knew nothing about it. What did his boss do when he found out about uh, Mr. Prieto's extracurricular activities? He tried to arrange a new polygraph where they could sort of clean up this problem so that nobody would be the wiser about all of these 20 years worth of foreign contacts. That's not what you want at the, you know, on the right hand shoulder of the president, a heartbeat away from a potential assassination. I, I agree. That was one of the more egregious uh, episodes. But I'm telling our listeners that the book is filled with many examples that rival it. And each one will find something that will resonate with them is the worst. Um, but let's put it in context before we go to the beginning of your book, which made me cry. Uh, but before we get to that, um, the Secret Service was formed in 1865. So it has a very long history. It was part of the Treasury Department, as I understand it, and focused on counterfeiting. First, let me just ask you if that's correct, and then we'll look at it beyond that. Yes, exactly right. Okay, so then nowadays it isn't part of the Treasury Department in a uh, for a variety of reasons. It got switched to Department of Homeland Security, and um, the Protective Division, which is really what your book focuses on, uh, which is the one that is charged with the responsibility for keeping safe the president, the vice president, the president's family, uh, visiting foreign dignitaries, certain cabinet officers. Um, what else do the other people in Secret Service do? What is the other part of their work? Are they still counterfeiting or is it just general financial problems? What do they do? So in scads, <laughs> dozens of field offices spread all over the country, uh, Puerto Rico to Seattle to Maine to Florida, um, field offices of Secret Service agents have two responsibilities. One is when the president's in town or the vice president or another important person being protected by the Secret Service, they are deputized essentially to be part of the army, the traveling army that 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 shields him. You know, for example, when Donald Trump was campaigning in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, that whole field office and three others around it all were shipped in to try to protect him on that in that summer of 2020 campaign rally, uh, which ended up being a super spreader of COVID, but let's put that aside. Uh, the other thing that agents are doing as they're learning in the junior phase of their career, they're learning how to investigate all manner of financial crimes, counterfeiting, which is their legacy, but also cyber crimes. So say, mm -hmm. you know, Target's um, stores are attacked by a Chinese hacking program, they're involved in helping protect, you know, the credit card holders who get scammed out of their money via a, a target hack. And this is, um, you know, increasingly a controversy within the Secret Service, because people who are worried about the ability of the agency to sort of keep up with its ever expanding protective mission, right, protecting 40 people now when it used to protect like eight. Um, that group of agents are starting to question, should we really still hold on to this financial crimes portion mm -hmm. of our work? There's the argument that when you investigate financial crimes, you're a better detective, essentially. You're a better investigator. And maybe that's really useful in the protective mission. Yeah. And then there are others who say one is not necessary for the other. So that sort of relates to my next question, which has to do with um, the 
assassination of John F. Kennedy and the role of what was then the Presidential Protective Division. Um, and it, it, I'd like you to sort of describe um, that episode and what happened that went wrong, because part of it does relate to, did they think about how to um, detective all of the possible things that could go wrong? And the answer is, of course, that they didn't. Um, and talk about whether the early frat boy um, showed up during that episode and the Kennedy administration. Well, thank you for that opening, Jill. And I want to stress to you that you're not the only one that cried. I, I cried during the reporting of this. And many uh, agents that I interviewed, I interviewed almost every single living agent on oh, Kennedy's wow. detail and his and the first lady, uh, Jacqueline Kennedy's detail leader as well. Mm -hmm. And many of them cried in the course of our conversations. It is a, it still gives me chills thinking about how much of a hair shirt so many of these men, and they were all men, wore in the wake of Kennedy's death. So public, so traumatic for the country, but a trauma like no other for the Secret Service agents who were on duty that day and the ones that weren't on duty. They felt it was their failure. Um, there is a, a wonderful agent who's, who's dead now, but I interviewed him several times. He was responsible for the advance, meaning preparing for that day. And he cried on the plane back from Dallas, uh, openly wept, and and was saying aloud in a way that Jackie Kennedy could hear. She was sitting next to the coffin in which her husband's body was now resting. He was crying out, you know, we're the first ones to lose a president. I'm the first one to lose a president. That's how it felt. Um, that day made me cry because interviewing them from their perspective, what had gone wrong, they were still beating themselves up about it so many decades after the fact. Here's a quick list. One, the notion of protective intelligence, meaning assessing the risk to the president, was really in such a baby stage in the 1960s. The Secret Service had like basically file folders where they kept index cards of individuals they thought were uh, a potential danger to the president. And every now and then before a trip, they would go to this file folder, look through the names and try to figure out where those individuals were. Not very thorough, not very exhaustive. And in fact, there had been an undercover informant to the FBI who caught on tape a man, a white nationalist, a white supremacist in uh, Miami who was confessing, essentially bragging to the undercover informant that they were plotting to kill Kennedy. And when asked by the informant, how do you plan to do it? This individual said, uh, well, we're going to use a high-powered rifle from a high-story building. That's the way we're going to get him. And they, this was literally, I am saying, literally days before what happened in Dallas. But that information, while sent in an alert to headquarters, never made it to the agents who were responsible for the advance, never made it to the agents that were on the protective detail. They had no clue that this was a plot, and they never secured any high story buildings and thought about line of sight. Line of sight is a dominant factor of every Secret yeah. Service agent's plot now. When they go to an event, they literally will build whole walls in a building where they feel that one is necessary, or they will bring in tractor trailers to create a blockade between the line of sight for any area they can't control on its way to the president's head. And it's that, it's that um, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but that's the plan. That was not planned for in Dallas. And many people can rightfully argue there is no way that the, the tiny little fledgling group of protective agents that were assigned to Kennedy in 1963 could have possibly secured the line of sight in Dallas that day. The other yeah. thing is it was leaked 
uh, that these that the president was going to be traveling on this particular route, that was leaked by political activists in the Democratic Party who wanted huge throngs of people to come out. It just made it easier for the assassin to know where he should station himself. Also something that's kept more secretive at this day, uh, today anyway. And Jill, you presaged the most important not the most important, but one of the most painful parts of this saga, which is the night before Kennedy takes his open car trip through um, through the streets of Dallas um, and arrives at Love Field. The agents who are on his protective detail, who are exhausted already from the, the travel schedule of this president, who's very young, very active, on the go, and now running for re-election, they go out that night to, quote unquote, off some steam. They go to a little, San, a, a, a little place in Fort Worth, not far from Dallas, that is kind of a beatnik speakeasy best way to put it. And in that hole of the in that hole in the wall where waitresses are known for wearing basically underwear to serve drinks, they're also serving grain alcohol with fruit juice to favored patrons. Favored patrons include anybody in law enforcement, any journalists, any VIPs from out of town. And the individuals, at least nine Secret Service agents who are with Kennedy on this trip, stay up until 2, 3, 5 a.m. in the morning before they report for work at 8 a.m. to take Kennedy on that fateful trip. I mean, it's absolutely chilling what you describe. And, and, and there was a point at which you described, I mean, the result of that was that they could barely walk. Um, and that was just a few hours before they went into the motorcade, which is frightening. I mean, I'm in college right now, and I can only imagine I have some friends who, um, you know, maybe get a little bit intoxicated. And the next morning, they are totally out of it. And I can't imagine them actually doing anything that requires any sort of cognitive function. So it's, it's terrifying and chilling to hear you talk about that. And you also talked about some of the um, more kind of the practices that change within the Secret Service, but I'm wondering what type of cultural reforms took place after the Kennedy assassination and how long did they last? Well, I think the most important changes in the Secret Service were brought about by the absolute determination of Director Rowley. You know, in today's Washington, D.C., you lose a president, you're out of your job. You're not even thinking about being director of the Secret Service anymore. But Jim Rowley, who oddly enough lived a few blocks from where I live now in Washington, D.C., and attended the church that uh, is just up the street from me, um, and his his grandson-in-law is Tony Blinken, uh, Secretary of State, just small Washington world news, that director uh, dug in like crazy to reform the process processes of the Secret Service to professionalize this agency. So instead of a bunch of guys hearing gunshots and wondering, what's that? And looking around, they had an instantaneous response in the future to an attack on the principal. This attack on the principal training became really absolutely wrote and saved several presidents' lives later, most notably President Reagan. It was an instantaneous response, that, almost like a muscle reflex that came about. There were a host of other things, but you know what was going for Director Rowley was that he had been begging Congress and the president and the vice president for more than a year for additional resources and basically saying not the president's going to get killed, but saying, I can't keep doing the job with what I have. Now, presidents have a problem and they continue to have this problem to this day. Joe Biden has it too, which is none of them really want to acknowledge that they need protection from their voters and from the American public. It's a resistance that's so reflexive, but Rowley prayed appropriately, I think, on the guilt of the members of Congress for returning him down. And, and they rallied around him to get him 250 more Secret Service agents, which was a more than 25% increase in the protection at that time for the president. And they rallied behind him in terms of creating whole new computerized lists. Computers were actually a brand new thing then. IBM was just in the process of really bringing those to the fore in businesses. And Congress members rallied around Rowley to make sure that when they were 
finding threats. They were keeping real computerized logs of who those threats were so they could check on them. In terms of culture, I can't say that agents stopped drinking uh, or stopped partying on the road. I can say that the pain of Kennedy's death um, actually increased alcoholism among Secret Service agents, sadly. Uh, Many of them um, developed drinking problems and, and some committed suicide. That was, again, the, the long arm of the, of the guilt that they wore after his death. Wow. What's so sad, though, is that every problem that you're mentioning, which is this drinking drunken out of town doesn't count, um, the financial, you know, that the president doesn't want to admit and ask for more, that the president at least particularly, and we'll get to this as we go chronologically, when we get to Trump, who really upped the need for um, agents because of the size of his family and their international travel, because of his traveling almost every single weekend to one of his own clubs, um, and yet not asking for, and in fact, cutting the budget or allowing a 1% increase, which does absolutely nothing. Um, But before we get to those continuing problems and seeing that whatever happened in 1963, which to me is still one of my very first and most memorable, not just political memories, but historic current, I mean, it's, you know, everybody who's my age knows exactly where we were on the day that Kennedy was assassinated and have an emotional reaction to it. But Let's let's move to another president that I know quite well and don't have the same emotional attachment to, and that is Nixon, um, because you write about how Nixon tried to install Secret Service protection for Teddy Kennedy. So it sort of relates back to the Kennedy family, um, although there's no way he would have qualified under the current rules at the time. Uh, why did Nixon try to do that? You know, what I find interesting about Nixon, uh, as I learned more about him and his um, attempt to use the secret sort of as a as a political and personal tool for his own benefit, is how similar he was to Trump uh, in terms of the way he treated the Secret Service. Uh, you could reverse that sentence, right? Trump ended up being so similar to Nixon in many yeah. ways, but especially in relationship to the way they viewed the service the way they tried to deploy it. Nixon, um, of course, we all know now, was an intensely paranoid man, uh, very lacking, a lot of feelings of inadequacy and a lot of belief and anger at the Kennedy family. So handsome, so privileged, you know, um, that they would always be, in his view, a political threat to him and his success because they were so, you know, dashing, right? Kennedy had beaten him. Uh, John F. Kennedy had beaten him because he was just a better looking guy who didn't sweat on TV. And it, it, and that, at least that was Nixon's view. So when Ted Kennedy um, was rising in political stature, whether or not he was ever going to run for office, which was at that point, um, unlikely for him to be a challenger to Nixon. Nixon wanted a tail on him. He wanted a spy following Ted Kennedy around. There were rumors that Ted Kennedy was having an extramarital relationship with a woman in New York. Nixon knew her name and he basically wanted a detail agent close to him that was supportive of Nixon to be assigned to Teddy Kennedy. And the attack on George Wallace, who was running, obviously, for for Mm -hmm. the attack on George Wallace, which left Wallace paralyzed, gave Nixon the opening he felt he needed. He called round and got uh, the governor of Texas on the phone, which you got to give Nixon a hand for this, right? In the moment of crisis, he doesn't let this crisis go to waste. He creates an opportunity. And his opportunity is we need better protection on several people. He named off a few of them and Teddy Kennedy. Connolly, you 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 organize uh, reaching out to Teddy and making sure we we make sure that he's got some protection with him. Now, the Secret Service is very defensive about this moment because they insist 
that the agent who was assigned to Teddy Kennedy never did any spying. That would be totally inappropriate. Uh, and yet still the assignment did take place at some point. Yeah. And of course, as your book makes clear, in most cases where there were affairs or other improper activities, the Secret Service kept it quiet. They did not ever reveal it during the life of the president they were protecting. So it's quite unlikely that they would have. Um, but um, let's jump ahead to Reagan. Uh, and Victor, did you have a question about Reagan? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's just, I think, you know, it happened slightly more than 20 years after the Kennedy assassination. We were talking about, um, you know, how the Secret Service has changed from Kennedy and, and how Reagan was kind of the next example. But I mean, the Secret Service swept the entire premise, as you wrote, and yet this still happened. And so I'm wondering, first of all, how do they not see John Hinckley, who um, <laughs> attempted the assassination, coming from 15 feet away? And how did that moment, you know, not just barely 20 years after the Kennedy assassination, hurt the Secret Service's public image and perception? And, and what was the response to that? Great questions. So, you know, I often like to say that the Reagan assassination attempt and his near death, and we didn't know it at the time, but he nearly died that day, um, illustrates the Secret Service's failures and also its incredible triumph uh, over the lack of professionalism it showed in that day in Daly Plaza in Dallas with John F. Kennedy. So what do I mean? The, let's start with the incredible failures. The Secret Service viewed that moment where, where he, Reagan had only been president for three months as sort of a routine at-home game. You know, they often refer to um, big travel or big trips as the away game. They viewed a trip to the Washington Hilton as no big deal. They do it three times a week no issue. We, we go in and out of that building all day long. And that routine quality uh, essentially lulled them into a sense of security that didn't exist. The agent who did the advance, an agent Green, did it the way every agent had done it before. It's not like he diverged or fell down on the job. But here are the key elements that were missing. Nobody screened a group of cameramen, a TV cameraman, who had all positioned themselves about three yards from the president's limo waiting outside the Hilton on a, basically, a, you've been there before, but for those who have not, just sort of underneath the front door entrance and on a parking pad, essentially, in front of the Hilton. There was a special exit for the president coming out of a side door from the speech. And it's all of about 15 yards from that exit to the limo, the door is luckily open. But the failure was nobody screened these cameramen so close to the president, whereas we always, as Secret Service agents, I say we, they, always screen anybody that's in arm's reach of the president. Here, they just were like, ah, eh, reporters, what's the big deal? John Hinckley had wound his way into that little cluster and was within range and shot at the president seven times in about a minute and two seconds. So here are the things they did brilliantly. His detail leader, who happened to be with him that day on a, a, a whim of a decision, hey, I've got to spend more time with Reagan. He's the new president. I'm the leader of his whole detail. I should, I should get to know him better, even though this is a no big deal trip. I should get out there. That detail leader, Jerry Parr, heard a shot and didn't look, didn't stop, didn't take a beat, put his hands directly behind President Reagan and began shoving him towards the open door of the limo. He saved his life that day. He shoved him so hard that Reagan said in the car later that he thought one of his ribs was broken from hitting that little bumpy part where the transmission is in the back seat. That's how hard. And then Parr landed on top of him. An agent directly behind him, uh, whose name I'm going to blank on right now, but I'll, oh, Randy Shattuck comes behind and folds up both men's legs and slams the door. Not a very comfortable situation if you've ever had your legs slammed up behind you. Drew Unruh, the driver, also 
Oh, forgive me. There's one more instantaneous. Timmy. Timmy is a detail agent, not a supervisor, in a pretty blue three-piece suit. And when he hears shots, what does he do? He's standing to the left of Reagan, in between Hinckley and the camera crews and Reagan. He puffs out his body like the linebacker he was in college and takes the bullet in the stomach, one of the bullets. Uh, he falls on the ground in a spin, but it's enough time for Jerry Parr to get Reagan in the car. Drew Unruh, the driver that day, knows he's got to spin out of Dodge and get out of there as quickly as possible. And he is praying to himself in his head, I hope I don't run over Timmy, a friend of his, an agent he knows, but he can't see his body anymore. And he knows that if he has to run over him, he has to, he has to get the president out of there. Takes off as fast as he can. Last incredibly great thing that happened that saved Reagan's life Jerry Parr has taken not only at the attack on principles training, like all the other agents, he's also taken an army emergency field medical training, which is now he's going to quickly diagnose is the president shot. We all know now that a bullet ricocheted inside the well and the doorway of the back of the limo and hit Reagan in the side of his chest and pierced a piece of his lung. But Jerry Parr can't find any of the blood coming from the side of him. He's felt up the side of him. He's asked the president all sorts of things. But he has one clue that things are not right. And while he's telling Drew Unruh back to Crown, meaning back to the White House, and Drew is speeding at speeds nobody travels in downtown Washington or DuPont Circle, Jerry realizes the president is coughing up a little bit of pink oxygenated blood. And he makes a calculation that that seems like he's been shot, something's happened. And whether he can find the injury or the wound or the blood outside, he can't, he sees the coughing. And he says, okay, Drew, George Washington University Hospital. And the surgeon who later works on Reagan tells reporters a good long while later that if the agent had not taken him to the hospital, Reagan would have died. Wow. All I can say is, to our listeners is the book is replete with exciting stories like that one. It's so well written. You must read it. Um, I'm hoping you can stay with us a little longer than we originally said, because we're only like, I mean, I can move ahead to the Clinton administration, but we're still a long way from Trump and Biden. Um, so yes. I'm going to ask yeah. a few questions. I'm sorry, I talked too long. Go ahead. No, you don't. No, I mean, I'm, I'm riveted. I'm sure our audience is riveted. It's, it's, it's fabulous. But I, I hate to skip any, I mean, we're going to have to skip some of it because it, it's, there's so much in it. But, um, you know, Clinton seems in some ways to be a repeat of the JFK era in which there were obviously inappropriate um, meetings with women that the Secret Service allowed, I mean, not as if they could stop it, but they didn't reveal it. They did nothing about it. And um, uh, they, they turned a blind eye to it. And uh, what, what allowed that to happen? And would it still happen today? Uh, I hate to say the answer is yes, it would still happen today. The Secret Service, um, has as a culture, and Victor, you've rightly focused on culture, as a culture, it believes, uh, not to a man or woman, but as a group, it believes that it keeps the confidences and secrets of the president of the United States. And of course, it gives lip service to the idea that if the president, you know, committed a crime, of course, they would comply and share this information. Well, that's not what happened with Bill Clinton when he lied to a grand jury about being alone with Monica Lewinsky and having a sexual relationship with her. But there have been very cogent, I have to say, arguments made that if a president doesn't believe these security guards are keeping his secrets, that he's going to push them 
at a distance. He's going to keep them at a distance, and that is going to hurt reaction time in the case of a crisis. This was essentially the argument Lou Merletti, director of the Secret Service under Clinton, made to the Supreme Court during the Starr investigation of, of Bill and Hillary Clinton that ultimately resulted in Clinton admitting that he had lied to the grand jury. I'm sorry, lied in a deposition. And Lou Merletti was right that, that Secret Service agents have to keep those confidences in order to stay close. But the problem is, where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line when the president makes you go see on an off-the-record movement a foreign national who may be an adversary to our country? Do you keep that secret when the president is plotting with lawmakers to block the peaceful transfer of power? Do you keep that secret when the president is putting himself in danger by meeting two women that you cannot screen in his hotel room in Hawaii? Uh, you know, where is it where is it written, the guidebook for which secrets are too dangerous to keep? And unfortunately, there are some that are just too dangerous and, and dangerous for the country and for the president. Very good analysis. And um, there's also the question of the political opinions of agents of, for example, during Clinton, there were vans of Secret Service agents that had reelect Bush stickers. And so I'm just wondering how President Clinton could trust them when he knew they supported not him. Yeah. Um, well, and, Hillary, and we see that again going forward to Trump and, and Biden. So how, how do you feel safe if you're the president and you know that the Secret Service that your life depends on supports your opponent. That is exactly the White House that Bill and Hillary Clinton walked into in 1992. Uh, the director of the Secret Service at that time was a, a well-known good friend of George H.W. Bush and uh, had rallied for him to be reelected. Uh, that their relationship went back many years when uh, Bush had had that particular director as the leader of his detail. You'll notice a trend, a lot of presidents name the leader of their security detail, the director of the Secret Service when they become president, if they've been vice president or candidate before. Um, and Hillary Clinton really didn't trust the Secret Service when a story leaked out that she had thrown something at her husband in one of the first months in office when they had gotten into a private argument in the private residence. And she insisted that Secret Service agents from then on be removed from the second floor landing at, at the official executive residence and moved down a floor. Now, of course, agents didn't like that. They thought, if they, what if there's something bad that happens? We'll be this much closer if we're on this landing. Well, she didn't want them that much closer. And she had good reason because they are the most likely leaker of that information and perhaps exaggerated it a little. We don't know for sure. In the case of, of your point, your well, I should say your question about political leanings, all law enforcement agencies and the Secret Service is no different, lean, yeah. conservative. And the Secret Service, though, takes a bit of pride, as does the FBI, in believing that, you know, the people elect them, we just protect them. We drop our politics at the door when we come in and pick up our badge and our gun. And the truth is, though, they don't really. <laughs> you know, they become aligned with their ideology and with the president who espouses that ideology. And to this day, there are a lot of Secret Service agents who badmouth President Biden. He had good reason to be concerned about whether or not he could trust the protective detail. And I don't mean every single one, every single member of that detail, but he had good reason to have some doubts about the agents that were around him because they were whispering the secrets of Biden and questioning whether he was ready for the office or whether he was, you know, slow Joe or sleepy Joe. These are things Secret Service agents have said. Yeah. So it's re it's reasonable to be concerned. Yeah. I mean, so 
has there been a change in the type of people in the agency over the years? I mean, has it gotten more diverse? Have there been more women? Or, or is this kind of political ideology, maybe the, the traditional, I guess, notion of maybe just white men in, in positions who drink all day? Is that still the kind <laughs> of people in the agency or has it changed? The Secret Service today has a new director. She's a woman. She's the second woman uh, to that job. She's a lifer. You know, Kimberly Cheadle has been in that position, has been in, has grown up in the agency. Uh, And so some would argue her gender matters very little. Um, In terms of the percentage of women that have been hired, it hasn't, that needle hasn't moved a ton. The Secret Service is still struggling to keep up with attrition. That's something that was a problem starting in 2011. (laughs) And it has, that nut, they have not cracked. More people leave than than they can hire fast enough. So it's an issue. Uh, if you want to become more diverse, you actually have to become a more protect, um, a, attractive agency to work in. And that's an issue for them now. Yeah. So, all right, we, we want to cover some of the operational and management failures of Secret Service. Um, we can't go through every example of them, but appropriations has been an issue, the workload of agents, the equipment you've alluded to uh, and how outdated it is, um, whether the equipment matches the mission is an issue, um, and then leadership as well. And you write about how when Trump got elected, um, agents rejoiced and also how he picked the person to run it not based on management skills or anything else. So if, if you would talk about that. Oh, I think we just lost Carol. Hopefully she can get back. Am I right or wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think Carol may have gone out for a second. So while, while, while we're waiting for Carol to come back um, to answer that, Uh, We can talk about how many issues, particularly on appropriations, which, as she said, is one president's find very difficult to ask for more. And uh, for me, reading the book, it was so prominent an issue during Trump because of the demands he placed on agents with his constant travel. Um, The overtime meant people were leaving the agency faster than they could come back. And that, and by the way, because I'm doing this from my phone and not from my computer, because my computer wasn't connecting, my phone keeps going off. So I have to keep restarting it. Um, Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll keep talking while Jill is trying to get connected. This is um, the, the the wonders of Zoom. Okay, there I am on full screen. Um, there is this concern. I mean, I mean, you looked at the Trump administration and, and what happened during that time under the Secret Service. I mean, this was a family that Jill and, and Carol alluded to earlier on. It was such a large family. They kept on traveling every weekend. And one of the things that Carol mentions in the book that I thought was so compelling and so interesting is that... Um, to the point of exhaustion. I mean, because it was such a large family, because they they traveled so often, these were people who, I mean, you could literally, they were at the tipping point or the breaking point of what they could do. And so it's, it's it kind of gets to that whole, what reforms need to happen. And we're going to hopefully ask Carol about that later on in the podcast. But it, it is concerning on a lot of levels how hard they are worked, because especially under Trump, when you have a president who I think doesn't really care about secret service agents and their well-being. Um, you know, what are what are some things that need to change? And so, um, Jill, I don't know if you wanted to ask that question. Uh, Luckily, Carol is back, also on her phone, so she knows the problem. Um, it's I don't know what is wrong with Streamyard, but um, here we are, and um, we can skip my last question and maybe move forward. We were talking about some of the problems of the Trump administration because of the size of his family. They were adults, they were traveling on business and the strain that it put on the secret service, the demands for agents and their exhaustion levels. um, And because there was no expansion of their budget, they couldn't hire new people. Uh, because they didn't have even the right HR department 
to put the hiring in place and they didn't have the technology. We'll get to that when we talk about fence jumpers. Um, but this fiscal issue is really a serious one that maybe the, the president isn't the one who has to say, I need more coverage. It has to be Congress that says we must protect the president. And that means that we have to have a reasonable number of agents and that the director of Secret Service has to be able to tell them the truth about the hours. And, um, and of course, those people have to get paid for their overtime and they're not getting paid for their overtime, at least not in a timely way. So what's the answer to that? Well, I think, as I've said publicly a few times, the president and the White House have to stop looking, and all presidents and all White House chief of staffs have to stop looking at the Secret Service as a service to the president and his family and start looking at it as a national security yeah. office that is critical to the protection of the stability of the democracy. And, you know, Secret Service directors told me very confidentially, uh, without their names attached, that they were afraid at different times to ask for the money that they felt they actually needed for cameras, for lights, for special ground sensors at the White House, for other devices that are classified to help secure that building and secure the president when he travels, because doing so would essentially um, the flare being that, you know, we are, you're in danger right now. They didn't want, they were afraid to say aloud, we need 200 million for this. It, it was a, a worry to them. And I just think they really have to reorient their thinking because these are public servants who deserve the tools to do their job. And why come to work every day and have to not only sacrifice the birthdays and anniversaries and Christmas holidays, and then also not be given what you need to properly meet the mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that we want to ask you about, um, and perhaps one of the most disturbing recent revelations from the Secret Service is, I mean, Trump, like every other president before him, or at least many other presidents before him, uh, installed agents that they liked. And in Trump's case, also installed people in the Secret Service who were loyal to him, including now the infamous Tony Ornato, um, who was a part of Trump's Secret Service detail, but ended up in this political position in the administration before heading back to Secret Service after Trump lost in 2020. Talk to us about that incident and, and maybe some other incidents um, that are concerning where Trump installed these agents um, who were loyal to him in, in, in a pretty bad, bad fashion. You know, when I first wrote about Tony Ornato, nobody knew who he was, um, but he crossed a line that no one has crossed in the Secret Service's history since it was created. That line was he agreed at Trump's request to become instead of a public servant, an apolitical career law enforcement officer. He agreed to be deputized, sort of like on a detail, as a White House political operative. His job on this Secret Service detail was to be the Deputy White House Chief of Staff for Operations. What, what is the mission of the Deputy White House Chief of Staff for Operations? It's getting the president reelected. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about what that role is. And he was being paid by the Secret Service. So, you know, there are a lot of agents that I interview that have different views politically and also different views about the critique of the agency. Some dismiss it, some wholeheartedly agree. All of them agreed that Tony taking that job was a failing and a and inappropriate in a way that they could not countenance. They could not find a way to justify it. Trump used Tony or Nato to get accomplished what the Secret Service might have balked at. What are some of the things the Secret Service that an apolitical director might have balked at? Okay. How about holding campaign rallies that created super spreaders in the middle of a pandemic before there was a vaccine? That was all Donald Trump. How about taking a joy ride around Walter Reed uh, while Donald Trump was still COVID positive and, and surrounded by a host of people um, 
also a risk, unnecessary to the president's health, unnecessary risk to a bunch of other people's health. How about um, agreeing to have the president give a rally on January 6th to amp up a group of people, some of whom were armed and known to be armed, before urging them to go to the Capitol in a mass march? These are all things that, uh, uh, sorry, forgot one more. Send Vice President Pence to the Capitol, a building that was the target of the attack, that the Secret Service was well versed in. All of these things uh, were, in in essence, enabled by Donald Trump being able to politicize the agency and put his favorite person in charge of those operations. Well, um, I think we have to have you come back because (laughs) I have so many more questions uh, maybe a good place to end, maybe two questions. One is, is there anything you can say about how Biden is doing with Secret Service? And two is, do you have any thoughts on how we could reform the Secret Service so that it would have the funding it needs and the personnel it needs to do the mission that we wanted to do, which is you know, protecting the president and other top officials and visiting dignitaries. I mean, he's they're in charge of every foreign visitor. Um, so and maybe those two questions, if you could just comment on those. I missed one of your words, Jill, in the first question. Can you tell us something about blank? Of the Secret oh, the relationship between Biden and the Secret Service. And, you know, are there any, have there been any fence jumpers or have there been any things that you have in your reporting discovered that are alarming in terms of whether Secret Services got the equipment, the financing, uh, the political will to protect President Biden, because we all know that they all, not not all, that there were MAGA hats on many desks, that there were uh, MAGA bumper stickers visible, uh, which if I were President Biden, it would make me very nervous about whether they were you know, going to take a bullet for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, I know that saying of, you know, we put our politics aside. Our job is to protect whoever's elected. But hmm, I don't know. It makes me nervous. And so, I, I again, I, I want to focus a little bit also on what possible reforms could we put in place that would make us as citizens feel that the president, whether we voted for that person or not, he is the president, so far he, hopefully someday she, but whoever the president is, is protected. I want that person to fill their full term. And um, I, I don't want to see any more assassinations or assassination attempts or fence jumpers who get all the way to inside the building. I mean, that's just totally unacceptable. And, you know, has the fence been fixed? Has the ground uh, sensors been fixed? Tell us about what reforms are needed. So I'll I'll dispatch with your great questions as quick as I can. One, um, Biden has and his team at the White House had a great deal of distrust in that group, and they made select and specific replacements of senior supervisors in charge of the detail so as to create a kind of bubble around Biden. He didn't think he was going to be killed. He just wanted an extra layer of folks he could trust and knew from when he was vice president, people who had been the supervisors in charge of him and also Dr. Jill Biden when she was the second lady. The um, reforms. I am a reporter and I'm just going to repeat to you what some individuals who have worked for a long time at the Secret Service or are former executives of the service have told me they would recommend. They feel strongly that the service is stretched too thin and that it should give up and relinquish its financial crimes responsibility and mission. While that's a legacy and a lot of people have a like warm and fuzzy feeling about it, it's really still part of the group's mission because senior leaders in the Secret Service want a second lucrative career after they retire. And a good way to get a second lucrative career is to have cyber and financial crime experience and be able to to pivot to work for Wall Street or for uh, security for big, big banks. And that's really why it's still part of the mission. That doesn't help the presidency. It doesn't help the democracy 
other law enforcement agencies can investigate and do investigate financial crimes. So that should, in their view, be be dusted off and, and removed so they can focus on the real job, the one that, that holds the country together. But if that mission were taken away, would the personnel be reduced on the grounds that, well, now they don't have that responsibility? I would worry about that. I mean, maybe in somebody's mind, but what's more important than protecting the democracy? What, what really rises? Do you think that we care about our credit cards being hacked and, and everybody looks to the Secret Service for the solution there? I don't think so. Well, Carol, this has been such an amazing episode. I mean, just absolutely chilling. And, and like we've said throughout the episode, I mean, we can't possibly get through to get through everything that you mentioned in the book. And so we'll have to have you back on to talk about it. But um, everyone, please read Carol's book, Zero Fail, The Rise and Fall of the Secret Service. It is such an amazing read. And um, I, I, I just commend you so much for, for doing this book. And, and I know it's, it's shed some really important light on, on this essential agency. Thank you both for having me. What good questions. What a great place to talk about this really revered agency that can be the elite of the elite again. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Well, that was, I mean, such a chilling episode. I mean, I was riveted by everything that Carol said and um, we'll have to, I mean, we're we're already an hour, so we can't chat for too long. Um, But I mean, maybe... Just one last question for you. I mean, what was the most disturbing part of the book for you? Well, I mean, emotionally, as I said during the show, the assassination of Kennedy just brought back so many memories. But I think what stands out to me is that in a book that is nonfiction, how it is told like a fiction story or like fiction, it's very compellingly written. And you go through in the same way that Carol described to us just now, um, a series of things that you were like, oh, I'm on the edge of my seat. How is this going to come out? That's how the book reads. And so it's it's a really, really well done book. I, I highly recommend it. And I will also say when she was talking about, you know, the coincidences of where she lives and everything, um, I lived a few blocks from the Hilton Hotel where Reagan was shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have... Around, around there? I lived in Adams Morgan, and it, it was literally two blocks from, from the Hilton. I belonged to the Hilton Swim Club, um, where my tennis teacher, right after Watergate, I took tennis lessons, and he told me to quit. He said, you don't understand how a ball bounces. You can never be where the ball is to return it if you don't understand how a ball bounces. It's oh. also where I met Dustin Hoffman, who was um, a visitor there while he was filming All the President's Men. Oh, wow. So, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, the Hilton Hotel, uh, you know, really has all these meanings for me as well. And it was it just sort of made me think of it when she was talking about all these coincidences. So for you, what was the most appalling or exciting thing that you read in the book? I mean, I have to agree with you. I mean, it's just, I mean, the style of writing is amazing. I think Carol also does a great job speaking about the book, but I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. Just when you read the book, I mean, I think sometimes it's, it's, difficult to imagine an agency so big and, 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 you know, Secret Service, I think, has a lot of different responsibilities, but it's such a big agency. We don't often, I mean, as myself, I don't think about the Secret Service that often. And so reading the book, it felt it was such a fast read and it was um, the writing was so good story, the storytelling elements I thought were amazing. But just this culture element was so shocking to me. I didn't know that the Secret Service, um, you know, I I think on its face, when you look at the Secret Service, you think, okay, these are people who um, really know what they're doing and, and and they take their job seriously, but then to read what she says about the whole frat boy culture and people who are intoxicated on on the position, I mean, it's like you know, it's 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 a deeply problematic agency. But at the same time, like she said, it's an agency that has such a vital role, and there are good people serving in the agency, and it's um, you know, it's in much need of reform. And so, um, it's it's a very disturbing to see how often the drunken out of town yes, yes. happened, and Absolutely. probably is still happening. That's very, very distressing. Um, And I I think, obviously, there needs to be more done. I also was very, I I had never heard the argument about that people are looking forward to a lucrative career afterwards by having this experience. And 
they've had trouble recruiting people. So if they didn't have that, I have to wonder, would they have so much trouble recruiting people to protect the president if that was the sole mission? That's a problem. And also because I can I know from my years in Washington and as responsible in part for part of the Pentagon budget, that if you take away a mission, they think you have to take away people and funding. And so it's not that you can say, I want to focus all the funding I now have on a more limited mission. No, they're not going to buy that. So I, I, those two things, mm, that's a very interesting uh, political discussion and philosophical discussion that uh, would take a long time to discuss. So since we're almost out of time, basically out of time right now and but i mean like like we said earlier i mean you just have to read this book to understand the entire scope of i mean we maybe touched on half a percent of what she talked talked about in the book i mean it's quite the amazing and gripping read so definitely check that out we'll be back next week with another episode of iGen politics and um in the meantime we hope that you subscribe right here on youtube.com slash politicon so you don't miss a single episode and that you like and share this video or this podcast with anyone who is interested about the secret service who maybe um has read carol's work has seen her on tv i mean she's such a great speaker so definitely share this with the people you know and be sure to leave us a five-star review uh, on apple podcasts or wherever you follow your podcasts um truly you guys make this podcast happen so thank you everyone for watching or listening and we will see you next week for another episode of iGen politics and if you're listening live you can tell your friends that they can listen to the podcast later at any time they want it's uh anywhere that you listen to podcasts and or they can watch it on youtube uh where it will be posted following this episode which is live and we're going to say goodbye for now goodbye thanks so much